0: Welcome to Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Tuesday, July 27th. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. In about a half hour per week, you can stay informed about events in Israel and the broader Middle East. We will also provide you with thoughtful perspectives on regional politics, history, culture, and more. Visit IsraelWeekinReview.com to receive regular updates and hard-hitting content. I would like to apologize in advance for my hoarse voice. I've been fighting a pretty wicked summer cold. That also explains the delay in releasing this episode. In any case, I think it's worth the wait. We have three important stories from the week, as well as a deep dive learning about the Maronite Christians of Lebanon. Enjoy. Israeli government agrees to review the use of Israeli firm NSO Group's Pegasus software. Kicking us off is a story about cybersecurity. Now, if you're anything like me, you have only the vaguest idea about what is meant by that term. In fact, while I consider myself a reasonably competent technology user, I really don't get under the hood. That level of technological sophistication is beyond my pay grade. Now, conventionally, a country's military strength and readiness has been measured in the number of soldiers in uniform, specialized units, tanks, guns, mortars, missiles, ships, aircraft, drones, those sorts of things. Without minimizing the importance of conventional forces for military readiness, there is an entirely new realm of warfare that nations must prepare for. This is cybersecurity or cyber warfare. In short, the essence of cyber warfare is this. If a country cannot secure its cyber assets, the nation is not secure. Future wars will certainly see attacks against financial systems, transportation, energy, water, sewage, satellites, telecommunications, and more. If a country does not have both offensive and defensive capabilities in these areas, they're putting themselves at a fearful disadvantage. We have already seen glimpses of how such warfare can be used in the real world, and what we have seen is truly just the tip of the iceberg. The first instance of modern cyber warfare that gained widespread global attention was the Russian cyber attack on Estonia, 2007. In a diplomatic disagreement with Russia regarding the Red Army's role in World War II Estonia and related intercommunal violence between ethnic Estonians and ethnic Russians, Moscow and shadowy groups in its pay used cyber warfare in unprecedented ways. In April of that year, cyberattacks shut down websites for many Estonian NGOs, the Estonian Parliament, banks, government ministries, newscasters, broadcasters, and telecommunications. This example is still studied when considering the development of modern military doctrine. While large orchestrated cyberattacks had occurred earlier, notably a series of Chinese attacks against the United States, The situation in Estonia gave the public a true glimpse of the mayhem that could ensue if the tech infrastructure of an advanced economy was neutralized by hostile actors. Russia has continued using such tactics in subsequent conflicts in Georgia and Ukraine. In short, we've entered a brave new world. Thankfully, Israel saw the writing on the wall quite early. They've entered the world of cyber warfare in a big way. As most of our listeners know, Israel has compulsory military service. Most Israeli men are drafted into the armed forces for 30 months, women for 24 months. Now, Arabs are not obligated to serve, and most ultra-Orthodox men don't serve either, but that's a story for another day. What's most important here is the idea that the Israeli school system serves as one of the largest HR departments in the world. Students with exceptional skills in math and science are steered to specialized after-school programs that prepare them for possible acceptance into specialized army units, particularly units specializing in cyber warfare. Israel's cyber capabilities are universally thought of as amongst the top five countries in the world. Some observers place Israeli capabilities and sophistication on par with Russia in the number two, perhaps number three spot, behind the United States. The most renowned of these units is named Unit 8200, Yehidash Monimataim. There are a number of other units engaged in related endeavors, but 8200 is the gold standard. Acceptance into this unit confers upon the inductee and his family respect at least similar to how an American parent might be intensely proud of their child's acceptance into Harvard, MIT, or West Point. This unit is unique because the skills acquired by its soldiers provide them with a cyber warfare education, truly second to none. They gain real-world experience combating Israel's myriad cyber threats. Many of its graduates have parlayed their skills and experience to become founders of major cyber defense firms. The cumulative value of these companies is calculated in the many billions of dollars to the Israeli economy and it's a growth industry. Some of these tech firms produce commercially available software for banks, financial institutions, large corporations, etc. Other companies in the field, such as the Israeli firm NSO Group, are classified as defense contractors. Their clients must be vetted nation states that are subject to Israeli governmental scrutiny and oversight. This sort of software is classified as a military weapon whose sale requires government approval. So what does NSO Group do? Why have they been making headlines in countries around the world? This Israeli firm was founded in 2010 by ex-members of Unit 8200. When the company was considering an IPO on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange earlier this year, it was thought to be worth approximately $2 billion. Its flagship product is named Pegasus. This software can be covertly installed on any mobile device, making any and all information on that device accessible to the government agency using it. It is said that it does not rely on phishing attacks or more conventional methods for infecting a device with malware. If I'm permitted to combine two ancient Greek analogies, Pegasus, the mythical winged horse of mythology, is also a Trojan horse that can fly through the air and infect a phone. For those of you paying close attention to current events, this is not the first time that NSO Group has made it into the news. Early versions of the software were sold to the Mexican government, who put it to use infiltrating the phone of infamous drug kingpin Joaquin Guzman, better known to the world as El Chapo. This software was used to locate and arrest the world's biggest drug lord, a man who had been evading capture by the Mexican authorities for years. Mexican President Felipe Calderón called NSO Group in 2011 to thank them personally and tell them that their software was decisive in El Chapo's capture. Citizen Lab is an interdisciplinary laboratory based at the University of Toronto. It is dedicated to researching information controls and network surveillance, particularly as they pertain to human rights and civil liberties. They've released findings that they claim demonstrate that Pegasus malware had been installed on the cell phone of imprisoned UAE activist and blogger Ahmed Mansour. They have also claimed that Saudi dissident Omar Abdulaziz, who was a confidant of murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, had Pegasus installed on his iPhone. For its part, NSO groups strongly condemned the murder and dismemberment of Mr. Khashoggi, which took place in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. However, the company neither confirmed nor denied that NSO CEO Shalev Julio had personally flown to Riyadh to make a $55 million Pegasus sale. In 2020, a list of over 50,000 phone numbers purported to belong to individuals identified as people of interest by NSO group clients was leaked to Amnesty International and Forbidden Stories, a media nonprofit based in Paris. This information was in turn passed along to 17 global media organizations, including journalists from The Guardian, Le Monde, The Washington Post, Frontline, Haaretz, and others. The investigative project of this collective group is called the Pegasus Project. It is now making headlines around the world and bringing scrutiny to NSO Group and, by extension, Israel's cybersecurity industry. The Pegasus Project alleges that foreign governments such as Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and others have engaged in espionage against heads of state including the former Prime Minister of Algeria, the Prime Ministers of Egypt, Lebanon, Yemen, Uganda, and Pakistan. The investigative project also alleges that President of France, Emmanuel Macron, and much of the French cabinet and diplomatic corps were hit in attacks emanating from NSO client Morocco. In an interview conducted by Israeli security expert and journalist Yoav Limor, NSO Group VP of Compliance, Chaim Gelfand, stated that all sales to foreign governments are subject to governmental oversight. Mr. Gelfand also claimed that the company is conducting an internal review and has fired clients in the past that it believes were using its software inappropriately. Mr. Gelfand insisted that 50,000 targets is a ridiculous number that far exceeds the scope of their work by many orders of magnitude. He claims that NSO Group has become the whipping boy for an industry that has become something of a boogeyman. NSO Group has totally repudiated the idea that their software contributed to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. It is true that Mr. Khashoggi was lured into the Saudi embassy in order to complete some paperwork for his upcoming marriage. His capture and subsequent murder seems to be entirely unrelated to information garnered from his phone. The company also patently denies that its software was used to spy on French President Emmanuel Macron, although an examination of the device of Macron ally and former environment minister François de Rougy seemingly did find the software installed on it. The Pegasus Project alleges that the attack on de phone emanated from Morocco, which was an NSO Group client at the time. I suspect that this is not the last we've heard of this story. Mr. Gelfand argues that NSO Group provides a life-saving service because today's criminal networks and terrorist organizations have encryption technology that surpasses what was available to even state actors only a few short years ago. He has stated that the technology is essentially a highly sophisticated version of a wiretap, Like that legacy technology, there's always the potential for abuse, but ethical and legal oversight is necessary. If militaries and law enforcement organizations unilaterally cease developing such technologies, dangerous groups will be able to operate with impunity. Some have speculated that the campaign against the NSO group has, at least in part, been orchestrated by the government of Qatar, a nation that is vociferously opposed to the normalization process begun by its Gulf neighbors. Those same Gulf neighbors are currently engaged in trying to squeeze Qatar with an aggressive sanctions regime. We simply do not know at this time. We can expect further action from governments around the world concerned that they may have been targeted. Like the document disclosures made available through WikiLeaks, this story sheds uncomfortable light on government activities usually conducted in secrecy. It has been confirmed that Prime Minister Bennett has spoken with French President Macron He has assured the French that there will be a full review and cooperation between the countries, as is befitting allies. Moreover, he has stated that tools such as Pegasus require government oversight, and he will ensure that Israel properly reviews any and all such software sales. He has also reminded the French president that he was not in government when the alleged actions took place. And now for some news that is not so sweet. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield founded the eponymously named ice cream company Ben & Jerry's in Vermont, 1978. The company has long had a reputation for left-wing activism. Mr. Cohen and Mr. Greenfield have described themselves as aging hippies who never shed the social justice activism of their youth. While the firm remains based in Burlington, Vermont, it was sold to British conglomerate Unilever in 2000, reportedly netting Cohen and Greenfield $150 million apiece. While their names continue to grace the cartons of ice cream, neither founder sits on the board or holds a management position with the company. In the acquisition agreement, Unilever agreed to continue the company's tradition of engaging in these critical global economic and social missions. They have named ice cream flavors after Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Like Cohen and Greenfield, Sanders is from a Jewish family in New York. They later left the Big Apple for the more bucolic settings of Vermont. Bernie's Yearnings has a chocolate disc on top of the package that represents how the 1% have managed to increase their wealth, while the 99% does not see anything trickle down. They have come out with the Save Our Swirl flavor to heighten awareness of climate change. I do, I do, Cookie Dough Ice Cream was released to celebrate the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of state bans on same-sex marriage. Pecan Resist was released to support the resistance to Donald Trump's presidency, And Justice Remixed is said to bring awareness of the United States' history of structural racism and the need for criminal justice reform. As you can see, this is a greatest hits list of the current American left-wing agenda. Unfortunately, opposition to Israel has become one of the articles of faith amongst a large subset of those on the far left. The company initially wanted to stop sales to Israel altogether, but Unilever argued that they should parse the issue more finely and only object to sales in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The licensee in Israel is based in pre-1967 Israel, not across the green line in territories considered disputed. Moreover, Israeli law prohibits banning sales to businesses operating in communities beyond the green line. The licensee cannot legally prohibit sales to stores on the other side of the green line. A ban of this sort is essentially a ban on operating in Israel. The company has announced that will not be renewing the Israeli distributor's license in 2022. This is a rare victory for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement or BDS. This movement seeks to economically punish the state of Israel by damaging its economy. Many of BDS's advocates have explicitly called for the ultimate destruction of the state of Israel. While it has largely been unsuccessful thus far, the BDS movement remains a potential long-term threat to the economic health of Israel. Israel and its allies have vowed that this is not over. Supporters of of the country have anathematized Ben and Jerry's, vowing to engage in a counter-boycott that may see a reduction in the company's sales figures. Parent company Unilever has had a significant presence in the country for many years. They sell a variety of food and beverage products, including other brands of ice cream, incidentally, household products and beauty and personal care products. Israel may be able to exert pressure on Unilever, which very much wants to continue selling its wide array of products in the country. The Unilever conglomerate owns over 400 brands, many of which are sold in Israel. Israeli teens use Axe body spray. Households lather up with dove soap and others wash their clothing with personal detergent. Until now, few had given the use of these products a second thought. Now Israelis may opt for Procter & Gamble products instead, like Old Spice Body Spray, Ivory Soap, or Tide Detergent. It's also possible that Israeli consumers may opt for blue and white products, those produced in the country. Over 30 U.S. states have laws on the books prohibiting those states from investing in companies engaged in what are termed discriminatory boycotts of Israel. This largely applies to investments in pension funds and the like. Some of those states also have laws prohibiting state contracts to go to firms that are actively engaged in boycotting Israel. A number of these states are currently reviewing how to proceed with Ben & Jerry specifically, and perhaps Unilever more broadly. This process runs the risk of becoming yet another skirmish in America's incessant and self-destructive culture wars. Israel supporters must be very careful to ensure that support for Israel remains a bipartisan issue. As it historically has been, they must treat BDS as the serious long-term threat that it is, while making sure that anti-Israel sentiments remain the purview of the leftward fringe of the Democratic Party. And finally, for some positive news in today's broadcast, Israeli airlines Israel Air and El Al launched direct flights from Tel Aviv to Marrakech, Morocco. As the last country to enter the historic Abraham Accords, Morocco and Israel have normalized relations and promised increased trade and economic cooperation. It is expected that tourism will be a major component of bilateral relations between these two countries. Up to one million Israelis have family origins that can be traced back to Morocco. Unlike other countries in the Arab and Muslim world, many Moroccan Israelis continue to hold the Moroccan people and their monarchy in high esteem. A community of 3,000 Jews remains in the North African country, unlike virtually everywhere else in the Arab world, where once thriving Jewish communities exist only in fading memories. Relations between Jewish and Muslim Moroccans were historically warm and persecution of Jews was rare, at least since the assumption of the Alawite dynasty, currently led by Mohammed VI. The Alawite dynasty, not to be confused with the ethno-religious group with a similar name in Syria, rose to power in the 17th century. Its kings had historically viewed the Jewish community as under their special protection. The king continues to inquire as to the well-being of his former subjects, now living in Israel. The throne ceremony that takes place annually, and will be held this Friday, will honor Morocco's monarchy. The kings have historically made it a point to invite Jewish notables to this event, arguing that they are part and parcel of the culture and history of the North African nation. Al flights began flying from Tel Aviv to Rabat in December of 2020, and now they'll fly to Marrakesh. Newly announced additional flights have been added to accommodate what is anticipated to be a very popular destination for Israelis. For those of Moroccan Jewish heritage and others, a festive mood was evident at the airport. The El Al Flight Lounge was decorated in Moroccan flags, carpets, and traditional furnishings. Israel Week in Review encourages written submissions, which may be selected for inclusion on the program. Successful submissions will be between 1,000 and 2,000 words and can be sent to comments at Israel The Maronites of Lebanon Part 1 The recent turmoil in Lebanon has turned our attention to one of the most unique and fascinating communities anywhere in the Middle East the Maronite Christians of Lebanon This community played an indispensable role in the creation of the Lebanese state itself They've had a disproportionate impact on the region as a mediator between the Arab world and Christendom Moreover Zionist thinkers have long hoped that this community could potentially be an important ally They are a highly educated and cosmopolitan minority surviving in a largely Islamic region, an identity that doesn't sound so different from the self-perception of the region's Jewish community. Thus far, peace has eluded Lebanon. Lebanon, the nation that seemed most likely to reach an accommodation with the region's Jews, has not thus far been willing, or perhaps able, to achieve this long-hoped-for but seemingly illusory peace. This country, filled with hauntingly beautiful landscapes, remains a prisoner to its myriad multi-confessional identities. Today, we will discuss one of those groups, the Maronite Christians. The Maronites are an ethno-religious community that have historically not conceived themselves as Arabs, but rather as Phoenicians, Canaanites, or Aramaeans. Since the early 18th century, they now largely speak Arabic, albeit with a distinct Aramaic-inflected dialect. Indeed, the history of this group far precedes the Arabic conquests of the 7th century. Even after Muslim rule had been established, the mountainous landscape of the country allowed for a far greater degree of local autonomy. Many rulers accepted nominal authority and allowed local actors a great deal of independence. The modern Republic of Lebanon roughly corresponds to the same geography as that of the ancient Phoenician city-states. The Phoenicians were a Canaanite people who in ancient times spoke a language that was mutually comprehensible with Hebrew. The territory of Lebanon itself is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible over 70 times. Its name, Lebanon, is understandable to Hebrew speakers, originating from the word white, Levan. This is a reference to the country's snow-capped peaks. Its famed cedar forests are also mentioned in the Bible, where it is said that this timber, the finest in the region, was used in the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Many archaeologists suspect that the long-destroyed first temple shared many architectural features in common with Phoenician temples, where the cults of Baal, Asherah, and other representatives of the Canaanite pantheon were worshipped. The Bible makes clear that northern Israel in particular existed in a sort of Canaanite cultural continuum with the region of Lebanon. Jews in northern Israel during ancient times would not have been unfamiliar with the high places dedicated to Baal or the fertility goddess Asherah, I can imagine an Israelite of the time saying something like, Of course, the Hebrew god Elohim is the most powerful deity, but it might be necessary to make an offering at the sacred grove. We cannot forget about Asherah. After all, the rains are coming soon, and Asherah has always helped us bring in a bountiful harvest. The Phoenicians were a maritime people that greatly contributed to human civilization. Their alphabet, the famed Phoenician script, is actually completely identical to the Paleo Hebrew alphabet used by the Jews until the Babylonian exile. It was only then that the Neo-Aramaic script that we use until today was adopted. The rabbis called it Ashuri, or Assyrian writing. To this day, the ancient Samaritan community, who continue to hold fast to their ancient traditions on Har Grizim, near today's Palestinian city of Nablus, ancient Shechem, write the first five books of the Torah. They do not believe in the prophets and writings of Judaism, in a script that is identical to Paleo-Hebrew and Phoenician. The Phoenicians established trading colonies throughout the Mediterranean world, Some of their most famous cities included the famed cities of Byblos, Zur, Carthage, and Cadiz in Spain. They came into contact with another group of people famed for their seafaring abilities, the Greeks. They shared their unique alphabet with the then-illiterate Greeks, who adopted it for their own purposes. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta sound altogether too similar to Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet to be mere coincidence. The Phoenician alphabet, and by extension its Hebrew twin, have the unique distinction of being the first alphabet wherein specific sounds were associated with specific letters. Bet for B, Gimel for G, and so on. Before this time, pictographic alphabets such as Egyptian hieroglyphics and Mesopotamian cuneiform used a complex system of symbology or picture writing. The Romans engaged in a war of total destruction against the Phoenicians of Carthage. The famed Punic Wars are called this because they are named after the Phoenicians. The Latin Punicus is simply the Latin variant of the Greek phoniki. In all likelihood, the Phoenicians referred to themselves as Canaanites. The territory we referred to as Lebanon became a province of the Eastern Roman Empire. Like much of the surrounding region, including Israel, most people spoke Aramaic during the Roman period, a transnational language with many dialects stretching from Mesopotamia to what is today Eastern Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Jordan. The urban elites in the trading cities along the coast tended to use Greek, the official language of the Eastern Roman Empire. Only Beirut was different. It became a city renowned for its scholarship and the teaching of Roman law. It was a Latin island in a largely Greek and Aramaic-speaking Eastern Empire. Despite the Roman veneer, cities and geographic features retained their Aramaic or Canaanite names. Beirut stems from Beirut, meaning wells. Baalbek, the famed Roman city in the Bekaa Valley, is the valley of the god Baal. Beka, of course, is nearly identical to the Hebrew word Bika, meaning valley. From the Aramaic-speaking peoples of Lebanon emerged some of the very first Christian communities in the world. The first Gentiles to embrace the New Dispensation were often Israel's Aramaic-speaking neighbors. The New Testament speaks of Jesus himself preaching in the southern Canaanite city of Tyre, Tzur in Hebrew. Incidentally, this name means rock in both Canaanite and Hebrew. It is named for the rocky outcroppings that mark the city's coastline. There are other accounts that seem to suggest that St. Peter, the first amongst the apostles, preached in what is today Lebanon. We know with certainty from Paul's epistles that he evangelized the residents of Tsur and Sidon, Sur and Saida today. Sidon is also mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, where it is etiologically linked to Noah's grandson, Sidon, the firstborn of Canaan. Most of the Canaanite peoples of ancient Lebanon adhered to pagan practices for some time, but slowly the Christian faith took firm root in the land. Belief in the nature god Baal and his consort Asherah transitioned culturally to the all-powerful biblical god and Mary, who Christians consider the mother of God. The veneration of Mary is very much an early Christian symbol with a continued powerful resonance amongst Lebanese Christians. Our Lady of Lebanon remains one of the most prominent statues and shrines to Mary anywhere in the world. The Lebanese venerate Mary. Incidentally, this is not limited to Christians. Muslims and Druze also adhere to the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. The Islamic Jesus, while not considered divine, is nonetheless an important prophet. Mary herself is often referred to as the Queen of Lebanon by more than just the Christians. A Christian hermit from a region near Antioch on the northeastern Mediterranean coast began to preach the Christian faith, a mystical attachment to God, and a thoroughly ascetic lifestyle in the 4th century. His name was Maron, and he and his followers' Christian path would ultimately guide the Maronite Church. At the time of Maron's birth, Christianity was not fully accepted as the state religion of the empire. To be sure, Constantine had proclaimed a toleration for Christianity in the Edict of Milan in 313. He had founded an entirely Christian capital in the east, the city of Constantinople. But Christianity was technically a tolerated religion at this time traditional Roman religion continued to be practiced. Even later, when the empire became officially Christian, meaning that Roman religion was to be outlawed, there was significant pushback. Constantine's own nephew, known as Julian the Apostate, rejected his own Christian upbringing and sought to return the empire to its pagan roots. Moreover, in 363, as Julian was leaving Antioch to battle against Rome's perennial enemies, the Persians, he issued an edict permitting the Jews to rebuild their temple. He felt that rebuilding the temple would invalidate Christian claims about Jesus and put an end to what he termed Galilean madness. Ultimately, fires at the construction site, either sabotage or divine intervention, depending on your perspective, delayed reconstruction. Julian was killed in battle against the Persians. The empire reverted to Christianity and Julian is regarded as the last pagan emperor. I add all of this detail to give you a snapshot of the religious scene at the time. Christianity was still battling for supremacy and it was unclear if it would succeed. Jews remained in the land of Israel and were numerous enough to undertake the reconstruction of the temple. Indeed, this was the period of time in which the Jerusalem Talmud was being redacted in the north of Israel. The cities of Tiberias, Tiberia, Sepphoris, Tzipori, and Caesarea, Kisaria, were all centers of rabbinic culture, quite close to the borders of today's Lebanon. What is also interesting is that the rabbis who wrote and compiled the Jerusalem Talmud spoken wrote in Western Aramaic, a language that was spoken by Saint Maron and his followers in Lebanon. The process of Targum, translating the Hebrew text into Aramaic, was also undertaken by Christians at this time. In fact, the official Bible translation used by the Maronite Church and some other Eastern churches is the Pshita. For listeners who speak a bit of Hebrew, they'll understand what this means. It gives over the Pshat, or commonly understood meaning of the text accessible to all. To this day, the Maronite Church conducts its mass in a Western Aramaic or Syriac dialect. St. Maron settled a bit further south and inhabited a series of rock-cut caves that were used as a monastery by him and his followers. The Monastery of St. Maron, or Der Mar remains a pilgrimage site in northeast Lebanon. It is said that St. Maron lived the remainder of his life there where he died. His follower, Abraham of Cyrus, moved westward to the tallest mountain in an already mountainous region. Mount Lebanon's northern slopes. He proceeded to convert the largely Canaanite, pagan, Aramaic-speaking occupants of the region to Christianity. Slowly, their pagan ways began to fade, and Christianity took strong root. There in the largely inaccessible mountains, an Aramaic-speaking Christian society developed, guided by the precepts of their founder, Saint Maron. This region remains almost exclusively Maronite to this day. It is dotted with small Christian villages, clinging tenuously to the rocky slopes of the mountains. These tidy and beautiful mountain villages are perhaps emblematic of the story of the Maronites themselves. They too cling to Christianity in a largely inhospitable region. They have been there through unspeakable tragedies that we will recount in next week's episode. But there they must remain. If the broader Middle East is to emerge from the anarchy, violence, and political instability that has been endemic in recent years, then Christians must remain. A democratic, tolerant, and humane Middle East needs the Christians of Lebanon the Middle East's last fortress of Christianity. Next week, we will discuss the Maronites from the Middle Ages to the present day, where their story intersects with that of the State of Israel. I hope you have enjoyed this program. Until next week, this has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review, providing you with a breakdown of this week's news from Israel, as well as thoughtful perspectives on the region's politics, history, culture, and more. Visit IsraelWeekinReview.com in order to receive regular updates and hard-hitting content. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping customers find your business through search engine optimization. To learn more, visit originstorymarketing.com.